0: CHAPTER ELEVEN OF RAIDING WITH MORGAN BY BYRON DUNN THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN MORGAN'S SECOND GREAT RAID General Morgan was allowed but ten days' rest after his return from his great victory at Hartsville. General Rosenkrantz had finished repairing the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, and trains were running again between the two cities. Reports had been brought to General Bragg that the Federal troops at Nashville were suffering greatly for want of food, that military stores of all kinds were short, and, he thought, if the road were again broken, Rosecrans would be forced to fall back on account of supplies. Who so willing and able to break it as General Morgan. But there was little use of trying to raid the road south of Bowling Green, for it was guarded by thousands of men, To cripple the road effectually meant another raid clear through the state of Kentucky. To this, General Morgan was not averse. When his men heard that another raid was to be made into Kentucky, their enthusiasm knew no bounds. What cared they for the dangers to be encountered, for long rides, for sleepless nights, and the tremendous fatigue they would be called upon to endure? They were to stir up the Yankees once more. That was enough. Kentucky, ho, for Kentucky!" was their cry, and they shouted and sang, until they could shout and sing no longer, for want of breath. Bragg was fully alive to the importance of the expedition, and was willing to give Morgan all the troops he could possibly spare. Morgan was soon at the head of the most formidable force he had ever commanded. It consisted of over three thousand cavalry, with a full battery besides his own light battery. The task which had been assigned to him was indeed a perilous one. It was to ride almost to the very gates of Louisville, and to destroy the immense trestle works at Muldraw Hill. This done, the Louisville and Nashville Railroad would again be effectually crippled for weeks. He set out from Alexandria on December 22nd, and in two days he was in Glasgow, Kentucky. The citizens of Glasgow had come to look upon Morgan as a monthly visitor by this time. Therefore, they were not surprised at his coming. Here he met with his first Federal force, which was quickly scattered. Remaining in Glasgow only long enough to rest his horses, he pushed on to Mumfordsville, where the great bridge spans the Green River. But learning that the place was held by so strong a force that it would be madness for him to attack, He passed a few miles to the right, and struck the railroad at Bacon Creek. Here, a stout blockhouse, defended by ninety soldiers, guarded the bridge. They put up a stout defense in hopes of being reinforced from Mumfordsville, but at last were compelled to surrender, the blockhouse being knocked to pieces by Morgan's artillery. Burning the bridge and destroying four miles of road, the command moved on to Nolan, where another blockhouse was captured and a bridge burned. This was the third time that these bridges had been destroyed by Morgan. Elizabethtown was the next goal to be reached. As they approached the place, Calhoun, who was in advance with his scouts, was met by an officer bearing a flag of truce, who handed him a dirty envelope, on which was scrawled, Elizabethtown, Kentucky, December 27th, 1862. TO THE COMMANDER OF THE CONFEDERATE FORCE. "'Sir, I demand an unconditional surrender "'of all your forces. "'I have you surrounded, "'and will compel you to surrender. "'I am, sir, your obedient servant, "'H.S. Smith, commanding U.S. Force.' "'Well,' exclaimed Calhoun as he glanced at it, "'I have often been told that Yankees have cheek, "'but this is the greatest exhibition of it I have met.' "'Who is H.S. Smith, anyway?' "'One of the numerous Smith family, I reckon,' dryly responded one of his men. "'He should have signed it John Smith. "'This would have concealed his identity "'and prevented us from knowing what a fool he is.' "'But the message was taken back to Morgan, "'and Calhoun never saw him laugh more heartily "'than when he read it. "'Go back and tell Mr. Smith,' replied Morgan, "'trying to keep his face straight.' that he has made a little mistake. It is he who is surrounded, and must surrender. The message was taken back, but Mr. Smith answered pompously that it was the business of the United States officer to fight, not to surrender. Very good, replied Calhoun. Get back, and let us open the ball. It took only a few shells from Morgan's battery to convince Mr. Smith he had made a mistake, and that it was the business of at least one United States officer to surrender and not to fight. 652 prisoners fell into Morgan's hands, also a large quantity of military stores. The stores were destroyed. At Elizabethtown, Morgan was in striking distance of the object of his expedition, the Great Trestle at Muldraw Hill. There were two trestles, known as the Upper and Lower, both defended by stout stockades. General Morgan divided his force. Colonel Breckinridge, with one brigade, attacking the lower stockade, while Morgan, with Colonel Duke's brigade, attacked the upper. A couple hours of severe shelling convinced the commanders of these stockades also that it was the duty of a United States officer to surrender and not to fight. Seven hundred more prisoners and an immense store of military goods were added to Morgan's captures. The goods, as usual were destroyed. It was but a few minutes after the surrender of the blockhouse when the trestles were a mass of flames. They were immense structures, each nearly 1,500 feet long, and from 80 to 90 feet high. Thus, the object of the expedition had been gained. Again, the Louisville and Nashville Railroad was rendered useless to Rosecrans's army. But Morgan's danger had just commenced, Thus far, he had had his own way. The enraged Federals were moving heaven and earth to compass his capture. A brigade was transported from Gallatin to Mumfordsville by rail, joined to the force at that place, and ordered to move east and cut off his retreat. The forces in central Kentucky were ordered to concentrate at Lebanon. Thus, they hoped to cut off every line of retreat. Don't let Morgan escape was the command flashed to every Federal officer in Kentucky. From Modraw Hill, Morgan marched to Bardstown. This led him across the Lebanon Railroad. Before all of his force had crossed the rolling fork of Salt River, the pursuing force, under Colonel Harlan, came up and engaged the rear. The rear guard, under Colonel Duke, gallantly resisted them until all had crossed in safety, but during the action, colonel duke was severely wounded by a piece of shell general boyle the federal commander at louisville gave out that he had died of his wounds and there was great rejoicing but the gallant colonel lived to the disappointment of his enemies the federals in close pursuit left morgan little time to destroy the railroad leading to lebanon but he captured a stockade and burned the bridge at boston reaching bardstown in safety he pushed rapidly on to Springfield. From that place he could threaten either Danville or Lebanon. His rapid movements puzzled the Federals and prevented them from concentrating their forces, for they knew not which way he would go next. From Springfield, Morgan turned south, leaving Lebanon a few miles to his left so as to avoid the large force at that place. He reached Newmarket a few hours in advance of his pursuers. To avoid the troops which had been concentrating in Hodginsville, he now took the road to Campbellsville. In going through the Muldraw Range of Hills to the south of Newmarket, his rear guard was struck by the advance of the Federals under Colonel Hoskins, and was only beaten back after a lively fight. There was now more or less skirmishing for some miles. There now happened to Calhoun one of the most thrilling adventures he experienced during the whole war. As the post of danger was now in the rear, he was there with his scouts, doing valiant service in holding back the Federals. There had been no skirmishing for some time, and nothing had been seen or heard of their pursuers. Not thinking of danger, he and a Captain Tribble halted their horses by the side of a bubbling spring and dismounted to get a drink the rest of the guard passing on. They lingered longer than they thought, and had just remounted their horses, when they were suddenly surprised by three horsemen, who came galloping up, yelling to them to surrender. For Calhoun and Tribble to snatch their revolvers and fire was the work of a moment. The Federals returned the fire, a pistol duel now took place, and both sides emptied their revolvers, but strange to say, no one was hurt. Throwing down their now useless weapons, all drew their swords and furiously spurred their horses on to the combat. It was almost like a medieval contest, where knight met knight with sword only. While one of the Federals engaged Captain Tribble, two rode straight for Calhoun, the foremost a fine-looking man in the uniform of a Federal Colonel. Parrying his blow, Calhoun, by skillful turn of his horse, avoided the other. They wheeled their horses and came at Calhoun again. Again did Calhoun parry the fierce blow aimed at him. At the same time, he managed to prick the horse of the other, so that for a moment it became unmanageable. This left Calhoun free to engage the Colonel alone, who aimed at him a tremendous blow. This blow Calhoun avoided, and as it met with no resistance, its force threw the Colonel forward on his saddle. As quick as lightning. The point of Calhoun's sword reached his heart, and the combat was over. During this time, Tribble had vanquished his antagonist. The remaining Federal, seeing one of his comrades dead and the other a prisoner, threw down his sword and surrendered. The dead officer proved to be Colonel D. J. Hallesley of the 6th Kentucky Cavalry. This conflict was long remembered as one of the most remarkable ever engaged in by any of Morgan's men, and Calhoun was warmly congratulated by the whole command on his prowess. The death of Colonel Hallisley seemed to dampen the enthusiasm of Morgan's pursuers. Although they followed him to Campbellsville, and from Campbellsville to Columbia, the pursuit was a feeble one. In fact, so timid was Colonel Hoskins that he ordered his advance not to engage Morgan, if they found him at Columbia, but to wait for the column from Hodginsville to come up. From Columbia, all pursuits ceased, and Morgan was left to return to Tennessee at his leisure. While at Columbia, Morgan reports that his men heard distinctly the sound of distant cannonading away to the southwest. To their accustomed ears, it told of a battle raging, It was the thunder of Rosecrans's cannon at Stone River. Little did Morgan's men think at the time that the distant thunder meant that hundreds of their brave brothers were being slaughtered in that fatal charge of Brackenridge. Murfreesboro is, as the crow flies, a hundred and eighteen miles from Columbia. In no other battle during the war is it reported that cannonading was heard so far. From Columbia, Morgan proceeded, by easy stages to Smithville, Tennessee, which he reached on January 5th, just fourteen days after he had started on his raid from Alexandria. During this time, his command had traveled fully six hundred miles. The raid was one of the most remarkable Morgan ever made, when we consider what he accomplished and the number of troops that tried in vain to capture him. Riding within a few miles of thousands of men, he easily eluded all his pursuers and escaped almost scot-free. General Morgan, in summing up the results of this raid, says, "...it meant the destruction of the Louisville and Nashville Railroad from Mumfordsville to Shepherdsville within 18 miles of Louisville, rendering it impassable for at least two months. The capture of 1,877 prisoners, including 62 commissioned officers... The destruction of over two million dollars worth of United States property, and a large loss to the enemy in killed and wounded. The loss of my entire command was killed two, wounded twenty four, missing sixty four. It seems impossible that so much could be accomplished with so slight a loss. The number of his killed and wounded shows that the Federals touched him very gingerly, that they did not force the fighting. In the capture of the stockades, in which he took so many prisoners, Morgan suffered hardly any loss, as he forced the surrender with his artillery. But the joy which Morgan and his men felt over the success of the raid was clouded when they reached Tennessee by the news of the result of the Battle of Stone River. Murphy's Borough no longer belonged to the south. Bragg had retreated to his new line along Duck River. End of chapter 11